Whether you like history or not, if you care about bravery, wisdom, passion, larger-than-life characters, and some of the most emotionally intense moments in human experience, you've come to the right place. Daniele Bolelli is a university history professor, writer, and martial artist, and he shall be your guide in a journey to the place where history and epic collide. Let's go set history on fire. There's a popular baseball legend that holds that Babe Ruth, in the 15th inning of Game 3 of the 1932 World Series, pointed toward the bleachers, and right after this he hit a home run in that exact same direction, giving a rise to the story that he had called his own shot, essentially promising a home run before he actually delivered it. There's quite a bit of controversy over this, whether this was actually what Ruth was doing when gesturing toward the bleachers. But whether this story is historically accurate or not, it sure is a beautiful tale. There's some wonderful romantic quality to the idea of a player having this over-the-top level of confidence as to call his own shot before he does. Why am I telling you this? Because in a moment of temporary insanity, here I'm calling my own shot. Some episodes are clearly better than others. There's a natural ebb and flow to the quality of one's work. Here I'm going on a limb and calling a home run on this series before we even start. The reason is that I cannot be more excited about this tale. It has all the elements that make epic stories. Sword fights hookers, religious wars, the greatest art of the Renaissance, the plague, the Inquisition, French and Spanish supporters fighting each other in the streets of Rome, and much, much more. I get the feeling that this will inspire me to put forth my best effort. But of course, you'll be the judge. Here is an anecdote that reveals much about the kind of man we're dealing with today. During a visit to a church in Sicily, a priest offered the painter Caravaggio holy water. Caravaggio asked the old priest what it was for. It will cancel your venial sins, my son, replied the priest. Then it's no use, replied Caravaggio, because my sins are all mortal. That's Caravaggio in a nutshell. He's the ultimate bad boy genius of the late Renaissance. He's renowned for being one of the greatest painters in history and having had a lasting impact on art, and at least according to director Martin Scorsese, even on modern cinema as well. But in addition to being a brilliant artist, Caravaggio was an outlaw, whose passion for hookers was only second to his propensity for ending up in jail. In Roman archives, 
there are over 15,000 pages of court documents about his crimes. Anything from police logs, eyewitness testimonies, court decisions. 15,000 pages. That's quite of an illegal career right there. Caravaggio was equally talented with paint and canvas as he was with the sword and with the art of breaking out of prison. With the same hand with which he painted the most amazing masterpieces of the Renaissance, he stabbed pimps and bludgeoned cops. He, needless to say, was often described as strange by his contemporaries. Nobody could quite figure him out. His art was outrageous and wild. His life, even more so. He was a larger-than-life individual, often weirder and more powerful, even than fictional characters. His story seems to be made for TV. I can't believe they haven't already made a TV series about him, because he's just that good. He very much opposed the idealized conventions of the art of his times, and brought instead violent realism and sexuality, to the traditional religious subjects that were commissioned by the church. Sort of picture Quentin Tarantino painting scenes from the Bible, and that pretty much would be the result. Shocked by his style, the religious and artistic elite of his day reacted in horror. In the words of a French painter, commenting about Caravaggio's career a few years after his death, he, meaning Caravaggio, came to destroy painting. Digging into Caravaggio's story is a bit tricky, because the information we rely on is much less than complete. Caravaggio didn't write anything, and hardly any of his words are recorded. There's a biography written by Giulio Mancini, who was an art collector who enjoyed Caravaggio's work. There's another one written by Giovanni Baglione, which... On one hand, it's great because Baglione was a contemporary of Caravaggio, so the information was definitely fresher. On the other hand, Baglione was one of Caravaggio's main rivals and absolutely hated his guts, so inevitably his biography is more than a bit biased. There's another bio by uh, Giovanni Pietro Bellori, but this is mostly based on Baglione's work with just a little new info. But this is what we have. So we'll uh, make we'll try to kind of interpret and dig the best information we can out of the available evidence. Our tale begins in 1571, when a certain Fermo Merisi married a lady named Lucia Ratori. They were married in Caravaggio, which is a small town barely 20 miles from Milan, the city where I grew up. They were definitely not upper class, but they weren't poor either. Attending the wedding and acting as witness was Marchese Francesco Sforza. Uh, This is clear testimony that these guys were not the lowest of the lower classes because having such a figure from the high nobility attending the wedding and acting as witness was obviously something that people from the lower strata of society would have never been able to afford. On the other hand, again, Caravaggio's family wasn't exactly swimming in gold either. The Sforza that I just mentioned were one of the most important ruling families of the Italian Renaissance, and this connection to the Sforza family would be quite important 
for the destiny of Fermo and Lucia's kid, who was born in September of that same year, 1571. They named him Michelangelo. His last name was Merisi, so Michelangelo Merisi. M-M, like Eminem. Probably that's not why his parents named it so, since I doubt they were time-traveling rap fans. But more likely, they liked alliteration, and the evidence is that they named it after the Archangel Michael, whose feast it was on September 19, 1571. The Archangel Michael is often represented in religious iconography of the Last Judgment, weighing souls, separating the blessed from the damned. This idea of separating the good from the bad definitely is not something that applies easily to Michelangelo Merisi's life. His whole existence will be lived across both extreme light and extreme darkness. He's one of those guys that, if you have a deep desire to cast him as a good guy or a bad guy, you will be running into trouble because he's both to the tenth power. He does amazing things and terrible things, and he's the same guy. And we're going to see how some of this play out. Michelangelo Merisi, in any case, is not the name by which he'll become famous. Everyone will end up knowing him from his nickname after the town where he was born, Caravaggio. Let's mention some major historical events that took place around the time of his birth, just to provide a little context. A few months after Caravaggio was born, the San Bartolomeo Day Massacre took place, which was this giant massacre of uh, Protestants in Catholic France, when uh, France was deep in the middle of uh, wars pitting Catholics and Protestants against each other. This story, by the way, the San Bartolomeo Day Massacre, is such a powerful, dramatic one that I think I want to dedicate an episode to it at some point in the future. So I'll shut up about it now and we'll go into it maybe in a year or so. Another event that took place around Caravaggio's birth, only eight days after his birth, the Great Battle of Lepanto took place. What was Lepanto about? Well, during the 1550s and 1560s, um, Suleiman the Magnificent, the Ottoman ruler, and then later his successor, Selim II, were busy waging a long-lasting fight against Europe. In 1570, their troops attacked the Venetians who were holding Cyprus, a strategically important island in the Mediterranean Sea, and were able to defeat them. In response, Pope Pius V, along with the Venetians, tried to recruit help among other Southern European powers. In response to this call, much of Southern European nobility joined under the command of Don Juan of Austria, the illegitimate brother of Philip II of Spain. So eight days after Caravaggio's birth, on October 7, 1571, the Battle of Lepanto took place. One of the heroes of the battles for the Christian side was Marcantonio Colonna. Um, less than two months later, after this big victory in which uh, the Christian navy was able to defeat the Ottoman army, on December 4, 1571, Marcantonio Colonna rode in triumph through the streets of Rome. He had been the commander of the papal galleys at Lepanto, and he rode on a white horse 
escorted by 5,000 people with over 170 Turkish prisoners in chains driven before him. He arrived at the Vatican and was received by the Pope. In some way, this was a, like a classic ancient Roman triumph, but was also a Christian event. Incidentally, Marc Antonio Colonna married off his daughter Costanza to a member of the Sforza family. And it will be this Costanza who will be one of Caravaggio's greatest allies. In the words of biographer Andrew Graham Dixon, she would be a constant support to him in times of crisis, giving him shelter when he was on the run and shielding him when he was under sentence of death. I've consulted for these episodes probably about 15 books, but Graham Dixon's is by far the most useful to me. He wrote an excellent biography of Caravaggio, beautifully written, full of great information, so you'll find me quoting from him quite a few times during this series. In any case, according to Graham Dixon, Costanza never even tried to get a painting from him. It's quite possible that their connection was, like she probably saw him as one of her kids, and she knew him since he was very young. We don't really know the details of what happens, but suffice to say that she will play a very important role in his life. Now, to add another layer of context, now again, forgive me if I'm taking it slow to get into his actual life. I tend to take things for granted too much. Sometimes I forget that not everybody listening has read three gazillion books on the subject. So for me, when I think Italy in the 1570s, I have a pretty clear image of what that means, but maybe that's not so clear for everybody else. So I figure it's a good idea to maybe dedicate a little time to providing some context. Specifically right now, I want to talk a little bit about Milan, the city in which Caravaggio will spend much of his early life. Caravaggio was about two hours away from the big city, from Milan. Uh, Milan had a population of 100,000, which may not sound like much today, but it was a big city for those times. Milan had the reputation as a scene city. Lots of conmen, pimps, prostitutes, particularly famous for swordmanship, which is a skill that Caravaggio picked up early in his life. Most males in Milan never married. Uh, they would rather spend time with lovers and prostitutes than commit to marriage. The percentage of street crime in Milan at that time was very high. So they were regularly, you know, walking through the streets of Milan at that time. You would often run into public execution of bandits and murderers and so on and so forth. The city was also often packed with unemployed mercenaries who were quick to get into armed fights, especially after drinking too much into some of the many taverns that were all over the city. The city was also under Spanish domination for a good portion of the 1500s. This was not an unimportant thing because whoever controlled Milan controlled the overland routes from Italy to the rest of Europe. So this was a strategically important location and the Spaniards were able to take it for themselves for good parts of the 1500s. A key figure in Milan during the 1560s and 1570s was a man by the name of Carlo Borromeo, who was the Archbishop of Milan and the nephew of Pope Pius IV. 
As a young man, he had undergone a religious crisis, had decided to give up much of the wealth he had accumulated, and returned to Milan around 1565. By the time he died, 20 years later, um, during his funeral, a Franciscan preacher named Francesco Panigarola delivered an oration, quite beautiful, by the way, where uh, there's this quote from the oration. It said, Behold, O Milanese, that your and mine cardinal is dead. Behold, our crown is fallen, our sun is set, our light is spent, and I am left in misery and grief which is a sweet speech, except that, seen with modern eyes, Borromeo was a rather disturbing figure, since he was a hardcore fundamentalist, determined to dictate how other people live their lives, and use force to make sure they complied. For that matter, he was a disturbing figure even to many of his contemporaries, who often resisted his heavy-handed tactics. Here we are at the obligatory Game of Thrones reference. If you have watched Game of Thrones, Borromeo is eerily reminiscent of a real-life High Sparrow. He had his own familia armata, a literally armed family, which was essentially his own private army of religious fanatics how to impose their brand of morality on everyone else. In the words of Andrew Graham Dixon, Borromeo saw sinfulness everywhere, and envisage his priest as an army of spiritual stormtroopers. One of the things he did was he created movable screens that would be used in church to separate men from women, because otherwise they would look at each other, which was the first step to sin. He passed the tons of rules against uh, women, in his words, dressing for seduction when going to church. He, he was big on the idea of confession, he had trained his confessors strictly in weekly classes and popularized the use of the confessional box to separate the confessor and the penitent in order to avoid temptations. He ordered his confessors also to interrogate uh, the penitents about knowledge of heretics or anyone who may own prohibited books. Among the prohibited books were, by the way, some of the greatest works in Italian literature the works of Petrarca, Machiavelli, Boccaccio, Ariosto. If you have never read Ludovico Ariosto's work, particularly Orlando Furioso, that is by far, in my opinion, forget Dante, forget any of those guys, Ariosto is the greatest example of Italian literature in any time, in my own personal top ten. Well, actually, my own personal top one, because it really, in my opinion, he's so far ahead of everyone else that there's no comparison. In any way, enough about my literary preferences, and let's keep playing with our story. Those confessors who didn't question the penitents about heresy were immediately excommunicated. Borromeo's attempt to turn Milan into a religious police state received support from both the Pope as well as Philip II, but there are quite a few Milanese citizens who are less than thrilled with it. For example, when he tried to pass a ban against carnival, against uh, jousting, tournaments, plays, dances, and many of the other activities that the residents of Milan enjoyed, and he went even as far as excommunicating those participating, 
there were a lot of popular demonstrations in resistance to these measures being passed. This led to Rome and Spain having to intervene to prevent popular uprisings. So Borromeo at some point had to backtrack on some of these uh, laws he was trying to shove down everybody's throat. His relationship with the Spanish rulers of the city was tricky since he took under ecclesiastical jurisdiction quite a few crimes that had long been considered under secular jurisdiction, and at one point during his clash with the Spanish government, he even went as far as excommunicating the Spanish governor. So, you know, the guy was uh, essentially trying to create his own uh, private theocracy in Milan. And the Milanese were, I'm sure he had a lot of support. There are quite a few people who liked him precisely for that reason, and there are quite a lot of people who hated him for that reason. More specifically, as it pertains to art, which is going to be a key topic since we're talking about Caravaggio's life, Borromeo passed a whole series of uh, regulations about how art could and could not be done. Now, the topic of art is interesting when you put it within the context of the religious conflict of the day, because Protestants were often against religious art. They saw it as a violation of the Second Commandment, they saw art as a form of idolatry to be eliminated. Um, art is applied to religious art, you know, the drawing about Jesus and the apostles and all that kind of stuff. On the other hand, the Catholic Church, following the Counter-Reformation, enlisted painters with the ideas that paintings were designed to bring uh, the unwashed masses closer to God. So, much of the art of this period was actively sponsored by the Catholic Church. This will be a key thing for Caravaggio's life, since his main patrons will usually be Catholic churches. But as we'll soon see, on one end he worked for them, but on the other he didn't exactly share their same approach to religion, or about how biblical stories should be represented. Borromeo had established fines for artists who failed to stick to his rules, for example, including animals in paintings unless they were explicitly mentioned in the Bible, uh, portraying religious figures in a less than dignified manner, showing any kind of skin on whether male or female subjects, and so on and so forth. There was a long list of rules for artists. And when Caravaggio grew up, he pretty much end up violating every single one of Borromeo's rules. Now, a little closer to Caravaggio's own early life, in 1576, when he was only five years old, in the summer of 1576, as Milan was preparing for celebrations welcoming Don Juan of Austria, the half-brother of the Spanish king Philip II and hero of Lepanto, something bad happen. Right around this time, there were signs of bubonic plague spreading in the city. Immediately, Don Juan and the Spanish governor fled the city, and the plague started spreading rather fast. During the plague, the movement of people was regulated. Nobody was allowed to enter the city or to leave it. So, Fermo and Lucia, Caravaggio's parents, 
had to hide some of their kids from the census so that they could try to smuggle them out of Milan without being busted. The plague was nasty. I mean, no plague is exactly known for being a pleasant experience. In the description of the times, they said that it gave you chills, fever, headache, vomiting. It led to swellings along the groin, armpits, and basically along the entire lymphatic system. Most people died within four days of showing the first symptoms. The plague was carried by rats and transferred to humans by fleas, or at least that's the current theory about it. Not that anyone was aware of it at the time, but that's what most modern doctors believe. They did understand, however, back then, the idea of infection and quarantine. So the houses where the infections took place were locked from the outside until everyone inside was dead. Uh, the quarantine laws forbade people to go to church. So people worship at the doors or at the windows. Borromeo set up altars at the crossroads so people in the houses could hear the rituals being celebrated. Anytime a plague hits, rumors run wild. Uh, some began, as usual, as they had done time and time again, to, of accusing Jews of having spread the plague. Um, particularly in the previous centuries, during earlier bouts of plagues, Jews were regularly tortured until they confessed, and then the entire communities of Jews was wiped out. Now, obviously, the confession was usually people who had been tortured too much, and they were ready to just be killed and be done with it, rather than to undergo more torture. For Borromeo, the plague was a gift in some way. I mean, I don't want to be cynical, but from the looks of it, it did seem that he saw it as a great crisis to exploit. He used the plague as an opportunity to drive home his extremely strict spiritual message. He argued that the plague was God's punishment for the sins that the citizens of Milan had committed over and over again. In Borromeo's view, the, the citizens of Milan had neglected their soul, they didn't go to confession enough, they went to carnivals, they frequented prostitutes, and uh, as such, the plague was God inviting the Milanese to repent. That was a kind of a rather rough invitation, since 10,000 people died within the first two months, that's like 10% of the entire population of the city. Imagine that happening anywhere. That's a pretty dramatic event. And by the way, after two months, it's not like the plague was done. It was just slightly slowing down the speed at which it spread. The city was in a state of anarchy. That September was awful. The, there were carts in the street piled up high with bodies that were rolled along the street at all hours of day and night. There was a special group of people, the ones known as Monatti. They were essentially grave diggers. They were public health officials who had the less than glorious task of collecting the dead and purging houses of diseases. As you may imagine, not exactly everybody wanted to volunteer to become one of the Monatti, so most of them were the lowest of the low within society. And Rumors abound regarding the Monatti pillaging houses and raping survivors and essentially doing what they wanted since nobody was checking up on them 
as everyone was too scared to do anything and kind of hid in their homes and you know the plague was freezing everybody all the rumors of rape at the hands of the monatti made many women scared and as such they often did not report the plague uh, which meant then it spread even further Borromeo, to remedy this, and some of the Monatti were found guilty of some of these offenses, publicly whipped, and some of them were even executed. By the following year, Fermo, Caravaggio's father, as well as his paternal grandfather Bernardino, had caught the plague and died. One of his uncles had also died a few months earlier. So by the time he was six years old, Caravaggio had lost pretty much all male members of his family. Anyone who could teach him what it meant to be a man, how to become a man, was dead. The only one left was his mom and his younger siblings. The plague eventually ended by 1578 after killing 20% of the whole population of Milan, but dramatically affected Caravaggio's family and his future life. Now let's fast forward a few years since we know pretty much nothing about what happens in uh, the following few years. But by 1584, Caravaggio, at 13 years old, decided to become a painter and signed an apprenticeship contract with Simone Petarazzano in Milan. Petarazzano was to keep Caravaggio in his house for four years and teach him everything he knew, and Caravaggio had to pay for this. Petrzano was not a bad artist, but there's really nothing particularly beautiful about his work either. In many ways, he was a, the opposite of what Caravaggio will become. He was a very tame painter who was more interested in not offending his patrons than in creating amazing art. It kind of looks like Caravaggio didn't learn a lot from him. Uh, in more ways than one, Caravaggio looks self-taught, which may not be a bad thing, because lacking guidance and ending up largely self-taught, most people either end up very mediocre in their fields, or what happens is that geniuses turn this problem into a source of strength, since they end up more original and unorthodox than anyone else. So this was clearly a blessing or a curse type of thing, the fact that Petarzano's teaching was, didn't do a whole lot for Caravaggio, but Caravaggio was clearly one of the guys who managed to turn this into a blessing rather than a curse. In some way, the fact that Caravaggio will end up being so creative is probably because his creativity was not squashed through strict schooling. He learned on his own. Think of uh, Jimi Hendrix and guitar playing. You know, the guy didn't even know how to read music, and the way he learned was picking up a guitar and spending hours and hours and hours playing it. Now, many people will do the same thing and end up mediocre guitarists, but not Jimi Hendrix. Similarly, same story happened here for Caravaggio. Some of his habits as an artist were weird, to say the least. He never painted a fresco, which was typical for painters at the time. He did not use preparatory drawing, even when he painted later in life. He just started painting directly on canvas without having sketched out the main figures or anything else. And his personality is, almost, is also beginning to emerge around this time. The fact that 
he's unorthodox, not just in his art, but in everything else as well, begin to show up here. Again, in the words of Graham Dixon, his contemporaries described him as a difficult young man who liked to settle disagreements with violence and who was prone to disappear for days on end. After the end of his apprenticeship, he went back and forth between Milan and the town of Caravaggio. Around this time, his mom died, which really meant that there was not, nobody left older than him in his family. It was just him and his younger siblings. He sold a little bit of family property that they had in order to survive for the following years. And this is where, for the first, but definitely not the last time, Caravaggio's story turns violent. The evidence for this is really confusing. There are only a few lines, and they are not exactly the most uh, carefully explained either. But the story, as much as we can figure it out, is that around this time Caravaggio may have killed someone, and he had to run away. Now, the very limited evidence seemed to indicate that the murder was of a gentleman, of a nobleman, and the cause of this was possibly some love rivalry regarding the prostitute. In the process of this, a policeman was also killed. So here we have, you know, Caravaggio went to prison, he did not confess, so he was not busted for this, and they did not find the evidence to tie him for this, but some of the classic elements of his life emerge in this tale. A connection with prostitutes, murder, conflict with the wealthy, hatred for the police, been wanted by authorities. Eventually, authorities had to let him go, and Caravaggio promptly decided it was a good idea to skip town and instead head to Rome um, by 1592. He left Milan never to return. By this time, he was, and we don't know why, but he was estranged from his brother, Giovan Battista. Giovan Battista was kind of like the good sheep of the family. He became a priest, whereas Caravaggio was clearly the bad boy. In either case, Caravaggio left Milan and headed for Rome. Rome was the place to be if you are an artist. Rome was the cultural and artistic capital of Italy, and for that matter of much of Europe as well. Uh, the trip to Rome was not an easy one. The roads to Rome were packed with bandits, regularly killing and robbing travelers. The Pope's forces were on the hunt for the largest band of outlaws under the gentleman bandit Marco di Sciarra. Sciarra was not your typical criminal who was just out to uh, rob and kill. Sciarra actually enjoyed wide popular support among the peasants and even among rural priests, since he regularly shared his spoil with the people. Shara is really like an Italian version of Robin Hood. He fits to a T with the Robin Hood uh, archetype. In those days, many peasants and herdsmen were driven toward illegal activities after being chased off their lands by rich landowners who decided to instead extend, you know, buy small-scale farms, put them together in large-scale plantation, and leave in poor peasants with no land and soon they would spend their money and they would be out of luck. So often the first steps toward banditry were not the result of a plan but of starvation. Uh, 
This is interesting because if you think about it, if you have been listening to History on Fire so far, you may notice a pattern here. This is the exact same thing that we mentioned in the first episodes when talking about the slave wars in ancient Rome. This is the exact same pattern that happens 1,500 years later. Um, rich landowners buying family farms of people who were desperate to, you know, they, it's not that they wanted to sell, it's that they had they had to sell because they were on either heavily pressured by rich landowners or downright starving for a bad harvest. So they wouldn't end up selling. And as a result, you know, the rich landowners would extend uh, and create large plantations. And the people who had sold to them would quickly run out of money and end up with no land, no money, destitute, and very ready to do whatever they had to do to survive. So, you know, in some cases, they would just start up uh, stealing a cow to survive a little longer, and that would be step one toward banditry. These landless peasants often united with out-of-work soldiers and even with country priests who were professing a sort of proto-liberation theology interpretation of Christianity. Marco Shara's gang was the most famous at this time. Uh, Shara was their boss who controlled the countryside south of Rome and he ended up being semi-official figure. He had a local level, he would appoint local judges, he would perform wedding ceremonies. He's the prototype of your... Uh, the good mafioso, in a way, the Don Corleone of the story. He stole from the rich to give to the poor, Robin Hood style. They said he had over 1,500 men under him, of which 600 were not horses. So these guys were... they were not your 510 bandits, this was almost an army. There's some funny stories about Sharra. They say that when he heard that the poet Torquato Tasso was scared to travel to Rome because of bandits, Sharra made it a point to personally escort him in order to protect him from those other bandits who were less sensitive to poetry than he was. The Pope's forces had been trying to crush him for a while, but regularly the Pope forces would end up looting villages of farmers along the way, whereas Shara protected them. So, surprise, surprise, the local population usually preferred Shara to the Pope's army. Among the wildest stories told about him is the tale of one day when he and his men arrived in a village while a wedding party was taking place. And some of the villagers were a bit scared to see all these tough-looking bandits coming into town. All the people got edgy seeing the notorious Shara and his men come into the village. But Shara simply got off his horse. He asked the bride if he could have the honor of having a dance with her. And then asked his men to, you know, he pulled off his hat and went around to all of his men asking that they each contribute a little money to donate them to the bride and groom. If your town is about to be invaded by bandits, these were definitely the kind of bandits he wanted. By 1594, he'll give up banditry and end up commanding his men as mercenaries uh, serving for Venice in a war against Dalmatian pirates. But enough with Shara. Let's now, I'm going to try, I swear, now that I've gone on down a few tangents, I don't even consider them tangents because these are just awesome stories that are related to Caravaggio's life, but I'm going to try to stick to more closely from Caravaggio from this point forward. Let's look at the city of Rome. 
that Caravaggio was about to enter. Much like some of the big urban centers around the world today, people flock to Rome from everywhere for opportunities, which sometimes materialized and more often didn't. Rome was a cosmopolitan city packed with foreigners. In the words of Montaigne, it is the most universal city in the world, a place where strangeness and differences of nationality are considered the least, for by its nature it is a city pieced together out of foreigners. Everyone is as if at home. Rome was about the size of Milan, slightly bigger, 110,000 inhabitants, more or less. And it was a rough place. The, um, I'll turn to another, um, Rudolf Bell, the author of a book called Street Life in Renaissance Rome, paints the picture pretty well, so I'm going to use one of his quotes. Pilgrims hoping for miraculous cures cross paths with diplomats on critical missions of war and peace. High prelates drawn to the pleasures and profits of worldly power and scholars searching for rare manuscripts mingled at the Vatican's earthly gates. An endless assortment of adventurers, students, artists, poets, tricksters and curiosity seekers were among the throngs of visitors. Abandoned women seeking a fresh start in life crowded into the tightly packed quarters along the Tiber River. In some way, poverty was everywhere, and Rome was a city of contrast. You know, on one end you had the splendor of the papal court and the ultra-rich living in beautiful palaces, and all around it was the ugliness of much of the rest of the city. A contemporary chronicler named Camillo Fanucci wrote, At Rome you see nothing but beggars, and they are so numerous that it is impossible to walk the street without their thronging around you. In 1587, the Pope Sixtus V complained that the poor wailing and lamenting, you know, this, the fact that these guys were, many people were essentially starving to death in the street and they were not happy about it, was a nuisance because it disturbed the faithful in prayer, which is interesting, I'll leave it without comment. Roman jails were full of homeless people, Jews, gypsies, all the people were excluded from good society. And what makes Rome interesting is that everywhere you walk, you are essentially walked on, on top of the ancient ruins of old Rome, of uh, Rome of the Roman Republic, of the Empire. And regularly the Romans of the 1500s took apart ancient Roman monuments and used some of their stones to build their own churches and their own buildings. The climate in Rome was tense. There was a fear of both the Protestant Reformation, there was fear of the Ottoman Turks, there was conflict between supporters of the Spanish monarchy and the French monarchy, who regularly got into fights in the streets. When Caravaggio arrived, the first thing that happened is that as he tried to enter the gates of Rome, custom officials would inspect his bags to check up for prohibited books to make sure he wasn't a heretic. The new Pope, Clement VIII, who will be Pope between 1592 and 1605, in some way was similar to Borromeo. He 
started cracking down, he banned duels, trying to limit carnival, passed laws regarding gambling on dice and cards, uh, tried to kick out as many gypsies and homeless people from the streets, uh, outlawed the carrying of weapons in public. He sent his own cops to enforce these laws in very strict fashion. Public executions on, in the streets were common. Uh, for example, if you were busted carrying a knife, they would, uh, the police would tie your hands behind your back, they would lift you up in the air from a rope and leave you dangling for a half hour or so, until the full weight of the body would start pulling your arms further and further back, until essentially dislocating both shoulders. The Pope also made, uh, you know, wanted to enforce a strict celibacy for the clergy, which may sound obvious, like, isn't the Catholic clergy all celibate? Well, not exactly. That was the theory. The reality was a very different thing. The, um, to give you an idea of how much of a theocratic element there was to life in Rome at the time is everyone in Rome was forced to take communion at Easter, whether you liked it or not, and you had to get a ticket from the priest proving that you had taken communion or face legal prosecution. There was... The story of prostitution in Rome was tricky because... On one hand, it's estimated that in a city of little over 100,000 people, there were probably 13,000 women who were prostitutes in Rome, which is an insanely high percentage. They even had their own neighborhood known as the Ortaccio, close to the Tiber River. The, many of them were sort of low-level street prostitutes who had very rough lives, but they were also courtesans of high rank who enjoyed more freedom than most noble women even did. So prostitution is a, it's a tricky word because it meant so many different things from highly exploitative street prostitution to very, in some way, to a good opportunity for some people who could enjoy a better life than they could have otherwise. So, you know, the fact that all of these different things are called prostitution is kind of misleading because they refer to very different lifestyles. This was in some way embarrassing for the church, since it represented an obvious betrayal of Christian ideals right next to St. Peter. You know, the fact that the whole city essentially was, there were prostitutes everywhere you turned. But aside from that, the church, as I mentioned earlier, was the main pattern of the arts. Um, it had always been so, but even more so because of competition with Protestantism. Uh, in the words of Andrew Graham Dixon, the beauty of Rome's churches must compel faith and crush heresy. This is why the city was filled with artists. So the Rome of the late 1500s was kind of like Hollywood today in some ways. It was packed with hungry artists, hustling and working low-paying jobs, while trying to gain a shot and making it on the big scene. Physically, they were very close to fame and fortune. Fame and fortune were always just one opportunity away, but in the meantime, they might as well have been a million miles away, because unless that opportunity materialized, they were, you know, they were out the door. The artist quarter of the city was quite dangerous. Here, people from Different immigrants would all live together and establish their own uh, neighborhoods within neighborhood based on where these different artists were coming from. 
So you had groups of German artists hanging out with other German artists, Dutch artists hanging out with Dutch artists, French artists, people from, can't even say Italian artists because there was no Italy. There were people from the many different separate states that made up what Italy would eventually become later down the road. And they would all sort of roommate together, go to the same brothels, the same taverns, uh, fight against those from rival nations. Um, they would often sabotage each other. They would, uh, when somebody wasn't looking, they would mix, uh, they would put acid into another painter's colors so that their colors would get all screwed up. Uh, it was uh, a highly competitive dog-eat-dog kind of world. So Caravaggio made his way into the part of the city where poor artists roommated together. There he struck a friendship with a young Sicilian painter known as Mario Minniti. Mario had fled legal troubles back at home, and he and Caravaggio became close buddies, and Mario ended up being the model for most of Caravaggio's early works since Caravaggio clearly did not have the money to pay for a model. Soon enough, their wild adventures began attracting a crew of artists, which included the architect Honorio Longhi, painters such as Antiveduto Grammatica, Prospero Orsi, Orazio Gentileschi, and many others. They would usually hang out together in one of the most central and famous squares in the city, Piazza Navona, which is, even today for tourists visiting Rome, it's an almost obligatory stop. In the words of Caravaggio's biographer, uh, Gilles Lambert, this is a beautiful quote, I, I really enjoy this quote. They say, talking about Caravaggio and his friends, Lambert wrote, They provoke the papal police, hang around with the many Roman women of easy virtue, drunk excessively and frightened the bourgeois. Their common passions included art, obviously, as well as drinking in taverns, gambling, playing a form of street tennis, enjoying the company of the ladies of the night, fighting, um, engaging in a whole variety of low-level criminal activities. In some ways you can think of them as the late Renaissance equivalent of a gangster rap crew. Tupac and Biggie would have been right at home in Caravaggio's company. Uh, the mix of art and crime and, every, and the lifestyle that went with it is uh, oddly similar when you look to modern rap crews and when you look at the artists in Caravaggio's times. It's quite possible that Caravaggio and some of his friends may have been pimps. I mean, they associated with prostitutes on a regular basis anyway, so in that way they could have gotten free sex and free models for their painting. So it's highly likely that some of Caravaggio's coming and going at night that's reported in some of the police reports had to do with his being on the lookout for his girls. The fact that he was a pimp is not fully confirmed, but it seems uh, like a strong possibility, to say the least. And at this time, cops were regularly harassing hookers and demanding money from them, so if true, he would have given even more reasons for conflict with the police, one of his favorite activities. Caravaggio was quite poor during his early Roman years. He had left Milan with some money, but that money was long gone by now. And as a painter who did not have a patron who sponsored his work, 
he depended on street art dealers to sell his work, which is something that really only the young and the desperate would do. Art academies were very much against the idea of selling on the open marketplace. Um, Caravaggio eventually got, there was a church figure, a prelate by the name of Pandulfo Pucci, who allowed him to, he essentially gave him room and board to stay at his place. Pucci was quite cheap though, Caravaggio nicknamed him Monsignor Insalata, which is Monsignor Salad, because he gave very little food to the people that he was supposedly helping. But, so Caravaggio kept trying his luck in the streets. At one point he painted, one of his early works is known as uh, Boy Peeling a Fruit, from 1592, representing, surprise, surprise, a boy peeling a fruit. He shows a young man peeling a bitter fruit, perhaps a symbol of his choosing to taste life in all of its forms, not just the sweet one, but bitter as well. Today, this painting is worth about $5 million. Back then, it was just enough to get Caravaggio something to eat for a few days. One of the rising stars of the Roman art world was Giuseppe Cesari. Actually, I have no idea how I pronounce it in this weird English, not Cesare, Cesare in Italian, but speaking a couple of languages, sometimes you mix things up and I uh, throw an English accent oddly enough when speaking Italian, and of course, as you may have noticed, I have just a tiny bit of an Italian accent speaking English. In any case, Giuseppe Cesare, that's the guy's name. He had a studio, and even though he was only a little older than Caravaggio, he was quickly becoming one of the most important painters in Rome. Caravaggio was allowed to join the Cesare studio, and the problem was that, on one hand, this was a great opportunity. You know, his talent had been noticed, and that's why he was invited to join. And there he met lots of other artists where... He could uh, compare techniques, uh, learn from each other. Was In that sense, was very much a great opportunity. But on the other hand, Cesare was apparently jealous of Caravaggio's talent. So he did not want to pass him any important work. He only asked him to kind of paint flowers and fruit and do other minor decorations on some larger painting which was very frustrating for Caravaggio. I mean, already the lodging and the food were kind of poor. On top of it, he wasn't really being allowed to develop his talent. So he felt exploited, in a sense. Now, at this point, story goes that Caravaggio got sick. One of the sources say he got kicked by a horse and developed a fever. Others just simply say that he fell sick with some kind of fever. We don't really know what kind of sickness, but... Marco Minniti and some of his other friends decided to bring him to the poor people hospital at Santa Maria della Consolazione. There, Caravaggio nearly died in these dark underground chambers where most of the patients were receiving minimal to no medical care. However, the prior of the hospital recognized him and let him move to a better room and better care because he was such a good painter. And the prior knew about it, and essentially they traded. Caravaggio painted for him, and in exchange he actually got good medical care. One of the paintings of this time is uh, Caravaggio did a self-portrait 
portraying himself as uh, Bacchus. Bacchus is the Italian version of Dionysus, the god of wine, alter state, sex, passion, outcasts, the same god that we discuss when talking about the um, Spartacus episode a few episodes back. Cesare never visited him at the hospital, so by the time Caravaggio got better, he decided to leave the Cesare studio. He cut his relationship with him, because he felt that they were Cesare was trying to hold him back anyway. Quite a few years later, uh, Scipione Borghese, who was a cardinal and the nephew of the next pope, went to visit Cesare and made him an offer uh, in order to buy quite a few of the works that Caravaggio had left behind in the Cesare studio when he had left the studio. Cesare refused. He said, nope. I'm not selling to you. I think I can get a better price. I think I can, you know, essentially wasn't playing ball. So Scipione Borghese made up trumped up charges against Cesare, had him arrested in order to be able to steal his paintings, which is how they ended up today in Galleria Borghese, which is one of the places where today you can admire a lot of Caravaggio's work if uh, visiting Rome. One of these paintings was this... uh, Boy with a Basket of Fruit from 1593. Uh, Mario Minniti was the model. And this is taken from a part of the Bible known as the Song of Solomon, which is probably the only part of the Bible that Caravaggio would have loved, since the Song of Solomon is an unashamed celebration of sex with some of the most explicit lines in any religious book you could find. The King James translation, well... You know, anything you read in King James language make whatever you read sound tedious and boring and dead. But if you actually strip it from King James language and figure out what they're actually saying in the Song of Solomon, I mean, this text, it's so over-the-top explicit that it's borderline porn for the time. Even back then in Caravaggio's times, Preacher offered an allegorical interpretation of the song, implying that this super explicit sexual imagery was really just a metaphor for the union of the soul and God. And typically, you know, most of the people attending church saw right through it and they just laughed, thinking that that was, that was stretching the interpretation a little bit. In any case, Caravaggio is still as poor as it gets and is having a rough life. So he and uh, his friend Prospero Orsi, they turn to one of the street dealers um, whom they knew, a man named Constantino Spata. The three of them would go to taverns together, drink. Spata told Caravaggio, look, you are an incredibly talented artist, but why don't you start, you know, use uh, classical sculptures as models, do what everybody else has done. And Caravaggio replied, forget classical sculpture. Nature gives me everything I need. So he called over a gypsy woman who was at a table nearby and decided to use her as a model. You know, Spatal kept suggesting him to paint religious images, but Caravaggio instead brought him a couple of paintings known as the Card Sharps and the Fortune Teller, where both... These two paintings were considered highly revolutionary since they invented real-life street drama as a subgenre of painting. 
they both focus on cheating. They didn't really deal with religion. They didn't. They deal with uh, uh, low-level, dark, ugly street reality, as Caravaggio knew it. The works were so beautifully done from a technical standpoint that they attracted the attention of a cardinal by the name of Cardinal Del Monte, who was the main agent for the Medici family, the, um, one of the most important families in Italy at this time, who ruled over Florence at this time. He was their agent in Rome. They had pulled some string at, uh, in order to make him a cardinal, even though clearly religion wasn't his number one calling. But being a cardinal for him, as well as for many others, was more of a political office than a religious one anyway. And this job was just to advance the interests of the Medici family in Rome. Del Monte was an interesting guy. There's a primary source about him as the following to say. Del Monte is a gentleman, a fine musician, a ready joker. He takes the world as it comes, has a thirst for life, and has friends in the world of letters. Sound like a pretty cool guy. He, his place, he lived in uh, the Medici Palace in Rome, known as Palazzo Madama, which incidentally today is the seat of the Italian Senate, is where the Senate meets to, still to this day. But back then in the 1500s was, uh, or rather at the 1500s, about to turn into the 1600s, he was and had been for quite a while um, the main... Medici headquarters in Rome, and Del Monte was the master of the house for pretty much for as long as he lived. So, impressed with Caravaggio's talent, Cardinal Del Monte decided to take him in and have him live with him within his palace. There were probably dozens, maybe even hundreds of people living in it. Uh, this was a very large residence, and Del Monte had lots of people in his service. And he saw no harm in hiring the 24-year-old Caravaggio as uh, one of his artists. In some way, the relationship between Del Monte and Caravaggio, the relationship that develops is... Del Monte for Caravaggio is sort of his first true father figure. Del Monte was in his 40s at this point, and he regularly will step up over and over again to help Caravaggio, to fish him out of trouble, to be a friend, but at the same time a kind of older, wiser figure that who actually cares for him, who actually seemed to genuinely try to do what's best for Caravaggio. The church at this time was somewhat split between, really on the issue of poverty. There were some people within the church who uh, stuck very closely to Jesus' words regarding take, giving away one's wealth, taking care of the poor, making, making the taking care of the less fortunate within society a priority. There were others within the church who, on the other hand, saw the poor as just immoral, mindless rabble, and they viewed them very much with suspicion. So there was kind of a divide within the church on the issue of poverty. Del Monte was clearly on the pro-poor side, which in many ways is going to fit with Caravaggio's worldview. For Caravaggio, Palazzo Madama was a great place to meet lots of interesting people. 
Not only there was a wonderful art collection within the palace, but also Del Monte was a patron to all sorts of different folks. Among them, Galileo Galilei, the astronomer whose uh, discoveries will prove revolutionary in the years to come. And it's even possible that as a result Caravaggio met him. He certainly met Galileo's father, who was a frequent guest at Del Monte's house, possibly even Galileo himself. But the house was also home to scientists, artists, courtesans, gamblers, musicians. Uh, Del Monte liked the good life. He had... uh, he liked to have fun, so as much as he was an extremely smart man, a patron of the arts, he also enjoyed uh, um, he enjoyed his fun, to say the least, and being a cardinal was not something that would stop him. Well, that would rarely stop anybody who was a cardinal at this time. You know, most of the cardinal's life at, around this age were uh, lives of luxury, lives of pleasure, lives of political power they were not exactly what we may imagine to be you know the somebody high up in the church being extremely devout i mean there were those guys as well but for the most part uh, devotion was not exactly seen as antithetical to pleasure in particular del monte was a big fan of music he and caravaggio both enjoy playing spanish guitar together and they often had some of the greatest musicians of the age dropping in for a visit. And in some cases, you know, it wasn't that rare for some of these visits to turn into spontaneous concerts, like some beautiful Renaissance jam sessions between uh, high-level musicians who would congregate at Del Monte's place. Uh, not surprisingly, the love for, that Del Monte had for music and that Caravaggio shared was celebrated in a painting that Caravaggio did in 1595 called appropriately The Musicians and later he did another one also about music in uh, in another painting known as The Lute Player. Among the other works that Caravaggio did in this period was another painting of Bacchus which as I mentioned earlier is uh, the Italian name for Dionysus. Mario Minniti as usual was his model and uh, there's actually a funny story about this painting. If you look at the painting on the surface, it looks, you just see um, the god of wine enjoying this cup of wine in his hands. But recent discoveries have shown that inside a cup of wine, in a tiny, tiny fraction, like in, in something that's almost impossible to see with the naked eye, Caravaggio drew his own self-portrait. He drew himself painting within the glass of wine just peering over the edge of the wine and which is it was probably an inside joke because it wasn't really designed to be seen by most people who would take a look at the painting it was probably something he did to for himself but i don't know i kind of get uh i crack up imagining caravaggio just there doing this painting and uh, having the idea probably cracking himself up thinking it would be a funny joke and doing that uh, among the other things that uh, he did around this time, absolutely stunning painting known as the Head of Medusa. Uh, this is something that Del Monte had already given to the Med- to uh, had sent to Florence to the Medici the painting of Bacchus. He will also send this Head of Medusa, which is this is where Caravaggio begins to put some serious intensity in his work. 
For those of you who are not up to speed on your Greek mythology, Medusa was this monster whose eyes could turn men into stone. But the story goes that the hero Perseus showed her her reflection uh, using a mirror so that he could cut her head off. Now the painting represents just the severed head of Medusa, but it's as, yes, the head has just been chopped off, but Medusa clearly still retained consciousness in that moment between beheading and death. And Caravaggio captures exactly that moment when Medusa recognized that her head has been chopped off, blood is squirting everywhere, and yet there's this, uh, her eyes still very much look alive. It's a stunning, probably disturbing painting, but as powerful as it gets. Now, the Medici family, they already owned a painting of Medusa that had been done by Leonardo da Vinci. So when Del Monte sent them this version of Medusa by Caravaggio, he was trying to present Caravaggio as a competitor with the great Leonardo da Vinci, who by now was a household name. Again, this period was very productive for Caravaggio. He also painted a, um, something known as The Ecstasy of San Francis, um, about the life of uh, the Italian saint, San Francis of Assisi. Some people suggest that he used uh, Del Monte himself as a model for San Francis, possibly. Uh, he did quite a few others. There is one, uh, Boy Bitten by a Lizard. He did uh, lots of work during this period. The improvement in his status and his living conditions, however, did not reduce his propensity for violence. Primary sources mention how Caravaggio would go from one tennis court to another, always looking for fights, along with his friends. He, he was one of the people in Rome who was legally allowed to carry a sword, since he was at the service of Del Monte. So only the people who were in the service of some of the big uh, houses in Rome from the powerful family would be legally are allowed to carry swords in public. And Caravaggio could not believe his luck that he was one of these people. Again, sources report that he always wore black, uh, which was a great disguise for a guy who was always out at night in possibly shady business dealings. The author, Ellen Langdon, has an excellent quote about this phase of Caravaggio's life. In Landon's words, a wave of extraordinary brutality and violence, with constant brawling with swords, daggers and stones, swept the streets of Rome. It was an overwhelmingly male city, of celibate churchmen, diplomats and ambassadors, each with a crowd of servants, retainers and soldiers, quit to take arms on behalf of their patron. Violence was endemic, and it exploded in the 1590s, when many soldiers lost their occupation. Now, even though these lines are not about Caravaggio in specific, they are providing the context in which Caravaggio moved. You know, many, there have been several wars in Eastern Europe that had recently ended, and at this time there was peace between Spain and France. So many soldiers had come back from Italy from these campaigns and they were you know, essentially unemployed mercenaries, which is never a good thing since these are people who are 
highly skilled in violence and with nothing to do and getting hungry. So that's usually a pretty bad match. So here we had the streets of Rome were full of aggressive poor soldiers ready to fight at the drop of a dime. And speaking of fighting, in 1597 Caravaggio found himself arrested for being suspected of being in a fight. There was um, this apprentice barber by the name of Pietro Paolo who had been attacked in the street and was in prison because he was refusing to name who was was the person who had attacked him. Uh, Sources seem to indicate Caravaggio as the most likely suspect, but since the assaulted party refused to point the finger, and we don't know why, we don't know whether it was because of intimidation, we don't know, you know, we have no idea why, but Caravaggio got away with it, essentially. Uh, One thing that, however, is interesting about this particular fight is that the, the description that the testimony gives regarding Caravaggio is uh, is one of the best one to to give a physical image of what Caravaggio looked like. I quote from the testimony that was given at this time. He said, He was a large young man, around 20 or 25 years old, with a thin black beard, black eyes, with bushy eyebrows, dressed in black, in a state of disarray, and a mass of black hair long over his forehead. This is probably the best, descri- the f- the best physical description that we have of Caravaggio. Caravaggio and his friends used uh, a Latin motto known as Nex pe nec metu, which literally translated means neither hope nor fear. And that was sort of their philosophy of life. They... Their group, I, earlier I compared them to a, a gangster rap crew. I mean, of course, the comparison fits to a point. In other ways, it was clearly different. Their group was, on one end, it was high art. On the other end, it was crime. There was a bit of a romantic fantasy that characterized them about being knights, about being warriors. You know, these guys... Uh, uh, Longy, one of his friends, regularly went around on horseback. Uh, in the words of Graham Dixon, would describe their. He has a very, very cool sentence describing Caravaggio and his friends at this time. He writes, Instead of wandering through the forests of Arthurian legend, doing battle with monsters and saving damsels in distress, they frequented the streets and taverns of Rome picking fights with pimps, and vying for the favors of horse. Some of the key figures in Caravaggio's entourage were the architect Honorio Longhi, who was always fighting or in prison, basically. He, he was a, you know, renowned for being a great architect, but he seemed to spend more time uh, you know, being busted for carrying weapons and using them. He was actually legally allowed to carry weapons because he worked for another of the big family in Rome, the Colonna family. But he was always fighting and was known to have a bit of a bad temper. Uh, Orazio Gentileschi, another guy with a very bad temper. He was a famous painter. He would be, he'll be also the father of somebody who will be an even more famous painter. Uh, Artemisia Gentileschi, who's... Uh, She's going to imitate Caravaggio's style quite a bit, but also add her own touch. 
She's even going to use uh, some of Caravaggio's paintings as model, but she's just a child at this time when these events are taking place. But in any case, her father was one of uh, um, Caravaggio's guys. Uh, the Sicilian Mario Minniti that I've mentioned a few times already, uh, he and Caravaggio have been very close, but eventually he's decided that the adventures that Caravaggio and friends were getting into were becoming to be a bit too much for him. Too much crime, too much violence, just too much. So Miniti decided, you know, it was fun and all, but I'm out of here. So for at least this phase of Caravaggio's life, Miniti will leave the group. So what we have here are gangs of artists slash criminals feuding with other crews over women, art, and pretty much any other pretext. They were very quick to move from words to blades. I sort of picture them as a Renaissance version of West Side Story. Eventually around this time, Caravaggio will begin to relent regarding the idea of painting biblical subjects, something that he had always resisted up until this point. He probably figured that yes, he would tackle biblical subjects, but he would do it in a way that nobody had done before. The first one is, you know, a biblical subject, if we really, really want to see it as such. It's probably not the way it was painted. Uh, his model was Anna Bianchini, a red-headed prostitute, quite likely one of Caravaggio's lovers. In this painting entitled Penitent Magdalene, uh, she's represented as Mary Magdalene of biblical fame. But really there's nothing in the painting to suggest that this is Mary Magdalene or that this is a biblical story. What we see is this, uh, you know, this sad image of Anna Bianchini with a single tear rolling down her face. Some people argue that this was just a portrait of Anna after she had been whipped as a punishment for prostitution, which is something that did happen from time to time. And one of the theory goes that they called the painting Penitent Magdalene just to give it a veneer of religiosity and make having made the portrait of a prostitute slightly more acceptable. So this is considered the first quote-unquote Christian painting by Caravaggio, even though, again, some of the religious elements may have been faked after the fact by just giving it the right title. He later used it in something that was more clearly a biblical painting. This is uh, Rest on, on the Flight into Egypt, which is a theme from a more recognizable biblical story. There was also, through Anna, Caravaggio met another prostitute and possibly another lover, who will play an important role in his life. Her name was Filide Melandroni. Filide was originally from Siena, but after her father had died, she, along with her mom, moved to Rome in 1593, right about the same time as Caravaggio had gone there. And they met with the Bianchini family, they were fairly close to each other, and the mothers in both families, both the Bianchini and the Melandroni, decided that they weren't making any money, times were tough, so they both put their daughters to work as prostitutes. And, you know, in itself it may sound a bit, it strikes us as a little disturbing. 
This is made even more disturbing when you consider that Anna and Philip at that time were about respectively 14 and 13 years old. Working as prostitutes at the streets of Rome at that time, probably safe to say they did not have the easiest life. But eventually Philip became one of the greatest courtesans in Rome. She'll... Uh, there was a nobleman who completely lost his head for her and hired Caravaggio to draw a portrait of her when she was still uh, when she was still in her teens. And this is a portrait that Philida conserved to the end of her life. She worked for somebody oh, this is somebody who really plays a big role in Caravaggio's life. Uh, not yet, but it's coming up. The man is Ranuccio Tommasoni. Uh, he was he came from an important family, but it's clear that his being kind of high up on social status didn't interfere with him becoming a pimp. He was uh, a protector of prostitutes, and Philida was one of his girls. Now, please forgive a small aside regarding the Tommasoni family, but they're going to play an extremely important role in Caravaggio's life, so it's worth addressing. Uh, these guys had uh, they had won a great reputation in the wars of religion of the late 1500s. They were a family of mercenaries associated with the Farnese, who were one of the most important families in Rome. Ranuccio's older brothers had fought all over Europe. Um, in particular, his older brother, Giovan Francesco, was uh, known as an extremely skilled soldier. Uh, by now, however, they were back in Rome. Ranuccio, had ne- because he was younger, he had not participated in these wars earlier, but along with his brothers, along with the other members of his family, they all legally carried weapons since they were in the service of the Cardinal Aldo Brandini. Uh, the Tommasoni name show up over and over again in the criminal records of brawls, fights over gambling and women. Uh, in other words, in some way he hanged out in the same, uh, in the same environment as Caravaggio did and often ended up in similar troubles. However, unlike Caravaggio, the Tommasoni family had a more even official, respectable occupation. You know, Giovan Francesco, for example, was uh, the chief lay official of his neighborhood. Basically played a role as some sort of town sheriff um, during time of crisis that happened from time to time when official authorities did not play their usual role in Rome. Philida joined the ranks of Caravaggio's model. First, in, um, in 1597, she was, uh, Caravaggio used her as the subject for St. Catherine of Alexandria. This was, you know, already was a bit controversial to use a known prostitute as a model for a saint, but it's interesting how Caravaggio painted this saint, because the saint is armed with a sword, this is not the classic image of the saint with uh, the halo on the head or any of these. This is, uh, in the words of Langdon, Langdon writes, she's far removed from the very many contemporary renderings of the virgin martyr, which tend to stress a sweet virginity, and show Catherine gently beautiful, jeweled and crowned, 
her eyes turn heavenwards in supplication. Caravaggio has tried to imagine her in his own violent times. The sword is a dueling rapier, and the model is the courtesan Philide Melandroni. His Saint Catherine is a disturbingly modern and real woman, surrounded by darkness. And later Philide also modeled for Caravaggio, along with Anna, both of them showed up in a painting known as Marta and Mary Magdalene. It's quite possible that Caravaggio's troubles with Ranuccio Tommassoni stem from a connection between him and Philide. I mean, we're speculating here, because obviously we don't know, but it does not seem that unlikely, considering that there's this weird triangle of Philide working over and over with Caravaggio, Ranuccio being her pimp, and Ranuccio and Caravaggio having problems. If you put the dots together, it doesn't seem so far-fetched. Some people suggest that Ranuccio may have been quite mad over the fact that his most beautiful girl would waste her time with what he considered a lowly painter. Well, apparently Philide didn't mind wasting her time because she also modeled for one of my favorite Caravaggio's paintings. I'm probably going to be using it as a... I'm going to be using the art as the cover for this episode on the History on Fire podcast website. Uh, this is the painting known as Judith and Olofernes. But before we get into this painting, there's something that we need to go into a tangent, and trust me, I don't even want to go into it. I'm only doing it because uh, the painting is directly connected with the story that I'm going to tell you, so it's not even that much of a tangent. But basically, this is... It stems from one of the most famous murder cases of the end of the 16th century in Italy. It involves the Cenci family. So let me give you the facts, and then we're going to go into how this is connected with Judith and Olofernes, or at least how it is according to several scholars. The story goes that a certain Francesco Cenci, who was an incredibly wealthy man who had been the treasurer for the Pope, died falling out of his balcony. Well, the story is a bit more complicated than just a guy sleeping and finding himself at odds with the laws of gravity. Change, as it turns out, was a violent, controlling man, very stingy, very abusive, and he didn't want his daughter Beatrice to marry because he didn't want to pay the dowry. So he had her, along with her mom Lucrezia, locked away in, uh, in a castle that he owned. Beatrice wrote her brothers, asking for help. But Francesco found out and savagely beat her. Some sources suggest that he also raped her too. So Beatrice, her mother, her brother Giacomo, and a man named Olimpio Calvetti, who was the custodian of the castle and was in love with Beatrice, decided to try to figure out how to get rid of their father. Uh, Francesco Cenci had to go. So eventually, after trying to poison him, after trying all sorts of things that didn't work, they decided to just go old school, and they just crushed his skull with a hammer while he slept, and then staged him falling off a balcony. However, suspicion of foul play kicked in, and so they were arrested. Being arrested in 1599, 
or really the years before or after for that matter in Italy at this time was not a fun thing because if authorities felt that there was real reasons to suspect you of something they could torture you and in this case they did they tortured Giacomo they tortured Beatrice they tortured Olimpio and some of them started cracking under torture the people public opinion was with the Cenci family the suspicion was that the Pope was going after them not because he cared that much about his former treasurer but because he wanted to get his hands on their wealth um, the people also, you know, popular opinion held that Beatrice handled herself with courage. She was this beautiful woman who handled herself well. Uh, some of her relatives confessed under torture. And despite the fact that, you know, her lawyer said that her father had sexually abused her, in other words, tried to provide some justification for the murder, despite the fact that lots of people in Rome begged the Pope for mercy the Pope wanted that sentence and he got it so on September 11, 1599 soldiers and executioners walked the condemned through the streets of Rome until they reached Pianza di Ponte Sant'Angelo there there were thousands of spectators waiting in super heavy heat September in Rome can get really insanely hot, and this was one of them. Uh, quite a few people there to witness the execution died when a stage collapsed. Uh, Caravaggio was there, along with Gentileschi, who had you know, all the parenting choice, had decided to bring along his daughter Artemisia, who was still very young at this time. And here is what transpired. Um, a man who witnessed the execution, a guy by the name of uh, Luigi Vendenghini, wrote to his mom what he had witnessed that morning, and this is one of the best testimony of what happened at the Cenci execution. So I quote from Vendenghini's letter. This morning, a terrible spectacle. They publicly beheaded a mother and a daughter of singular beauty, while a son had his flesh torn from his living body for murdering his father, with the help of the said mother and daughter. A younger son was present on the scaffold and watched the deaths of his mother, sister and brother and passed out several times. So in other words, what they did is they first beheaded the mother, Lucrezia, then they brought forward Beatrice, who... All testimonies are that she remained very brave in the face of the execution, but right before getting executed, she called for God's vengeance against the Pope, and after that she had her head cut off. They were the lucky ones, because Beatrice's brother Giacomo had his flesh torn piece by piece with red-hot pinchers and beaten to that, while the remaining brother, because he was too young to be executed, was forced to watch, and he would regularly pass out from how ugly the whole thing was and being emotionally overwhelmed and so they would wake him up to make sure he wouldn't miss any of it and then he would pass out again and they played this kind of sadistic ritual over and over again most people were disgusted with this not because they didn't appreciate a good execution but they really felt that um, 
the father had been a horrible individual and that Beatrice had been justified in trying to defend herself, that the murder was really more of self-defensing than, than anything else. Story goes that her head was uh, crowned with flowers as people brought flowers where the head had been left to be exposed to everybody. And so they kind of turned her into a martyr, in a way. Um, many people cried over her body. Uh, they lit candles around it. It was really like what was supposed to be a public execution to make an example of a convicted criminal was resulting in a bit of a problem for the Pope and even led to some riots uh, that same day. But as everybody has suspected, uh, the Pope's nephew, Gianfrancesco Aldobrandini, quickly after this uh, scooped up all of the Cenci properties for next to nothing at a public auction. So the rumors that the Pope was really just going after Cenci's properties weren't exactly squashed by this action. Now, why did I tell you this story? Well, for one, because it's a crazy powerful story. But also because some scholars believe that after witnessing this, Caravaggio was understandably freaked out, and he channeled the emotions that went with the execution into his next painting. Now, keep in mind, not everybody agrees with this. Some people believe that this painting of Judith and Holofernes may have even been done before the execution, but there are some that connect the execution with the painting. Now, the tale of Judith and Holofernes come from the Apocrypha, which were biblical writings were rejected by most Protestant denominations, but they were included in the Catholic version of the Bible in 1592. Judith was a beautiful widow who, in order to save her Jewish people, had gone to seduce the Assyrian general Holofernes, and when Holofernes passed out and decided to crash for the night and fall asleep, she chopped off his head. Now, the Caravaggio version is insanely graphic. There's some serious, powerful, gory violence in this. Holofernes just woke up as he's getting his head cut off. So he's dying, but he's not yet dead. Sort of the same as in the, in the severed head of Medusa that we discussed earlier. Now, typically, most artists would tackle this subject. They would show him asleep, and maybe they would show... Judith with a knife going toward him. They did not show the actual moment when Judith is chopping Holofernes' head off with a sword. The model for this painting was Philly de Melandroni, as usual. You know, we've seen her time and time again in Caravaggio's paintings. And to make, because this is not quite controversial enough yet, Caravaggio painted Philly's nipples clearly poking against the white fabric of the dress, in suggesting a state of excitement. So it was supposed to be a scene from the Bible, ends up being a brutally violent painting with a hooker in the part of the heroine, and a clear sexual vibe associated with it. Artemisia Gentileschi, who I mentioned earlier, loved this, and later when she grew up she used this, she painted this subject a couple of times, and for her it was uh, particularly emotionally important since she regularly painted herself as the woman doing the head cutting 
and a certain Tassi was a man who had raped her as the guy getting his head cut off. So for her it was kind of therapeutic, and this painting was extremely important to her life. In either case, wow. And if you want to check it out, if you... Again, if you have a delicate sensitivity, my suggestion is that you have already turned off the podcast by now because of all the stories of blood and gore, and there will be more. And if you are of a delicate sensitivity, Caravaggio is really not your guy. But if you are intrigued, check out his painting. I'm going to use... Well, check out all of them, really, but I'm going to use this one as the episode cover for... Uh, this particular episode on the History on Fire podcast website. There is an interesting anecdote that took place around this time. Story goes that Caravaggio's blood brother, Giovanni Battista, the, the good ship of the family, the one who had pursued a career into becoming a priest, he was studying with the, the Jesuits at this time, and he showed up at the Del Monte residence trying to have a meeting with his brother. Cardinal Del Monte, after Giovanni Battista introduced himself, allowed him in, and he sent some of his servants to make sure to track down Caravaggio to tell him that your brother is here to visit, come on over. Caravaggio's biographer Mancini tells us the following of the encounter. At the sight of his brother, Caravaggio declared that he didn't know him, and that he was not his brother. No one knows why. You know, he was his brother. You know, we know that there, he was his brother. This, uh, I don't know him, he's not my brother, is not a statement of denying a blood relation. It's a statement of denying that he would recognize him as a brother. Clearly some serious bad blood had transpired between them. We don't know why. Did the religion have something to do with it? Did Who knows? There's no way to know, but clearly Caravaggio Whereas Giovanni Battista wanted to reconcile, Caravaggio had none of it. So he had completely cut off ties with his family, he had not gone to his sister's wedding, he did not want to have anything to do with Giovanni Battista. And that's really, I mean, it's clearly an important thing, but because we don't know any more about it, we really can go on past what I just told you. So switching gear, by now we are getting to a time in Caravaggio's life, by now we're reaching the year 1600, which was an important year in Rome. Because the year 1600 was considered a holy year. It was every 25 years this was considered a jubilee year. And in these years, pilgrims could get extra indulgences for sins and gain access to heaven despite their sins. So... Plenty of people flocked to Rome for this uh, extraordinary event. Pope Clement cried during a ceremony in which he struck three times on the holy door of St. Peter. Uh, it was kind of the symbol of the start of the year of indulgence. There's something ironic about, you know, the reason why the Pope cried was because this event was celebrating the suffering of Christian martyrs in the past. Why would this be weird? I mean, why can the guy shed some tears thinking about some poor people who got a really raw end of the deal at the hands of the Roman Empire early on? Seems fair, right? Well, yes, it totally seems fair, except that right in that moment, as well as in the years before and after, 
there were men and women who were similarly tortured in Rome under Pope's rules. In Langdon's words, in the stillness of San Stefano Rotondo, Sixtus V had wept over the sufferings of the early Christian martyrs. But in the prisons of Rome, men and women were submitted to identical tortures, on the rack and the veglia, and throughout Rome, in the prisons of the Tor di Nona and the Tor Savella, in Piazza Salviati, the Piazza del Popolo, the Campidoglio, the Campo dei Fiori, more and more victims were hanged, strangled, quartered, beheaded, mutilated and burned, their numbers increasing as the Jubilee approached. So I guess what Langdon is hinting at is more than a bit of hypocrisy on the Pope's part. Um, in the year 1600 is also the year in which one of the most famous of these uh, victims of church persecution was executed. We're talking about the priest Giordano Bruno who was a Dominican monk who had abandoned the order to become a wandering scholar. He had written treaties about astronomy, math, philosophy, but was eventually arrested for quite a while for heresy until eventually they passed the sentence against him. So during the night of February 16, 1600, Bruno was taken from his cell in Tordinona, uh, tied up at the stake in Campo dei Fiori and burned alive. To this day, Bruno is considered kind of a martyr for science. It's debatable how much he supported science in the modern sense of the word, but he's clearly seen as one of those guys who was killed really because of his opinions and nothing else. So he's seen as a symbol of uh, the church crashing down on dissent, even if it's just, you know, something as basic as freedom of opinion, freedom of religion, some of the freedoms that today we take for granted and we assume everybody always respected them, well, clearly the church was not big in respecting them at the time, and uh, Bruno paid the price for it. Campo dei Fiori, the place where Bruno was burned alive, if you go to Campo dei Fiori today, you'll see there's a statue of Giordano Bruno, supposedly in the very same spot where he was burned. Um, I went to visit a few years back. It's, um, it's powerful, you know, when you walk in those places and you think about what happened in the very places where you're setting foot, it's intriguing. Clearly, as much as these uh, historical meditations may be disturbing at times, they must have not disturbed me that much, because right after visiting the Giordano Bruno statue, I went just a few feet away at a place where they make the best sangria I've ever had in life, and good God, was it amazing. But in any case, back to our story. A few months back, Del Monte had scored huge commissions for Caravaggio. And Caravaggio had been working on it for months, and in 1600 is when he finally unveiled the final product. Specifically, it involved work for a chapel in San Luigi dei Francesi, which is the national French church in Rome. Story goes that a cardinal had bought a chapel in there and wanted it to be dedicated to St. Matthew. 
they had tried to hire other artists to do it, but either they hadn't done the job fast enough or their job was not to the satisfaction. In either case, upset about the slow progress, um, the people in charge of the church were looking for alternatives, and Del Monte was able to successfully lobby to push Caravaggio as their man to take on this task. This was a pretty drastic challenge for Caravaggio since size-wise this was the biggest work he had ever done and also one of the most complicated. He required him to do two paintings, the calling of St. Matthew and the martyrdom of St. Matthew. First he started working on the martyrdom of St. Matthew. The stories that St. Matthew had gone to preach in Ethiopia and had converted a woman was betrothed to the king. This woman then decided to become a nun, and the king was more than a bit upset of being robbed of her virginal charms, so he sent a hitman to kill Matthew while he was celebrating mass. That, in some way, this is a perfect story for Caravaggio, who very much dug violent scenes. But Caravaggio, oddly enough, had a hard time with it. He started, uh, he started one version, but his, his characters were too small, and he didn't like what he was doing, so he stopped the work and started instead on the calling of St. Matthew. And rather than following the classical, idealized model of the calling, he turned back to what he knew. What he painted was street life. Uh, it was very much... You know, in dress and everything else, he wasn't even t- trying to bother to represent how people may have dressed at the time of Jesus. All of the characters in the calling of St. Matthew are dressed in uh, the style that people wore in Rome at that at Caravaggio's time. The setting is Matthew's tax office. And the feeling that you get from looking at Matthew and his friends is that here is a group of guys gambling together or doing something equally casual. And Jesus shows up in the middle of this taxman office, the hand of Jesus pointing toward Matthew, indicating him and essentially calling him to become one of his followers. The hand of Jesus is drawn almost identically to the way the hand of Adam is uh, done in the, by Buonarroti in the Sistine Chapel. And some people think that this is, this is a controversial touch on Caravaggio's part since uh, drawing the hand in the exact same style as the hand of Adam indicates Caravaggio's belief that Jesus was human more than emphasizing his divinity. Who knows, maybe, maybe not, like anything else. Now, what we do know for sure is that this painting not only is amazing, it's its use of light and dark, uh, the chiaroscuro style, uh, style, which exactly means light and dark. That was what makes Caravaggio's fame, you know. The way he uses light is nobody before or after has done something that amazing in the use of light. And really, there's no painting like the calling of St. Matthew no other paintings is as good in uh, being an example of Caravaggio's mastery in the use of light. But beside that, what's interesting about this painting is the mixing of sacred and profane. 
you know, we have a scene that's very much part of daily life, and at the same time, it's right in the middle of this that Jesus shows up and the calling to a different life appears. Um, many people at the time remark that Caravaggio seemed to enjoy paintings that were where the sacred and the profane mix, where you couldn't really separate the two. In some way, this is not a coincidence. This is not something that Caravaggio does just because. The idea he's probably pushing is that saints, heroes, are not otherworldly figures, but they are ordinary human beings. They are straight from the street, like anybody else. He regularly made a point of painting biblical heroes as poor, as being in many ways not that glamorous, so that ordinary Romans would watch these paintings and recognize themselves in it, not see the saints as completely removed from the experiences that they were familiar with, but they would see the saints as being an extension of themselves. Caravaggio was in some way waging a war against the idealized, sanitized, we could use a modern word, say, disnified art that was loved often by the rich and powerful. This is clearly none of it. When he finished this painting, he now turned to the previous one, to the martyrdom. And what we got here is Again, no, uh, there's nothing idealized about the martyrdom. There's no uh, pretty scene about the saint ascending toward heaven. What we get is a scene of brutal straight violence. Uh, Caravaggio painted himself in the crowd, not as one of the key characters, not as the killer, not as St. Matthew. He painted himself essentially as a witness of what's happening. He finally turned in these works, in the year 1600. They were probably first exhibited in Palazzo Madama before they were uh, presented in, within San Luigi dei Francesi. These are the works that turn Caravaggio into a superstar. From this point forward, he emerges as one of the very top two or three painters in Italy and commissions are going to start flowing, and everybody's going to ask of him, and so on. Now, what I mentioned earlier about Caravaggio's style being a mix of his expert use of darkness and light being what makes him noticed, in some way, I bring it up again because it's a good metaphor for his life. His life was this mix of amazing artistic genius and ugly street violence all rolled into one. Now, I feel that I should mention, I guess, a personal story regarding San Luigi dei Francesi and uh, these particular two paintings. I went probably about three years ago, I want to say. Um, yeah, it was July, June. June of three years ago, I was in Rome... I went to see uh, San Luigi dei Francesi, and I'm walking around trying to see where the Caravaggio paintings are, and I would figure there would be a long line of people there to see them, and there's nobody, you know. Suddenly I find myself oh, just staring at these paintings, and there's no one around. Now, the paintings are... The place where they are located is a fairly dark part of the church, and Italy being Italy, and they're always trying to figure out a way out to just 
take some tourist money. The way it works is that you have to put one euro into a machine and then that will turn on the light for a few seconds so that you can actually see the paintings pretty well. So I figure, well, why not? One euro, no big deal. So I put in my one euro into the machine, the light comes on, the Caravaggio paintings show up in all of their splendor, and suddenly I look behind me and there are 60 people behind me. I mean, how cheap do you have to be? These guys were probably just hanging around in the church waiting for somebody to put their one euro so that they could get to see the paintings without being the one to actually pay. Really? Over one euro? Well, in any case, that, by the way, was by far one of the best days of my life. It was my lady's birthday. The wonderful Savannah M was... um, who does the editing for this podcast and who contributed most of the... Unless we use original art, such as today when we use a Caravaggio's painting, she's the one who contributed the art for the the website when we illustrate the episodes. In any case, it was her birthday. We had some amazing tiramisu for dinner. We had... uh, It was the same day when we went out to have our sangria in Campo dei Fiori. We went up to another one of the best places in Rome, Castel Sant'Angelo. We kind of climbed to the top of the castle where you get a 360-degree view of Rome. Right while we were there, this huge thunderstorm broke out. So there's thunder, lightning, heavy rain. We are just kind of hiding under under the roofs of Castel Sant'Angelo, watching the storm wash over all of Rome and kissing wildly, so I'd say that was a good day. But since I'm taking a guess and that some of you may not be overly interested in the stories of my escapades in Rome, I want to get back to Caravaggio, well, just be a little patient because this concludes part one of our Caravaggio story. And uh, within, uh, within a month from now, part two is coming up, as Caravaggio's life gets even wilder, even bloodier, even more dramatic than what we've seen so far. <laughs>